0: A loss for the Trump administration at the Supreme Court and the deciding vote came from President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Justice Neil Gorsuch. Gorsuch voted with the liberals on the court in a 5-4 decision throwing out a provision in federal law that had been used to deport immigrants convicted of serious crimes. Trump criticized the decision on Twitter saying that it means, quote, that Congress must close loopholes that block the removal of dangerous criminal aliens, including aggravated felons. My guest is Kevin. Johnson, a professor at UC Davis School of Law. Kevin, the Department of Homeland Security also said the ruling undermines its efforts to remove known criminal aliens. How much of an impact could the decision have on deportations?
1: In the end, I don't think the decision will have much of an impact on deportations. The immigration laws are fairly detailed and fairly thorough, and there are many different grounds that you can try to deport somebody who's a uh, convicted of a crime from the United States. In this instance, the, what the court held was that this language, crime of violence, uh, which is one of many deportation provisions, was just too vague to withstand constitutional scrutiny. So, so I, I think that um, DeMaya, who is the, the immigrant at issue in the case, still may be subject to removal. Uh, the, the Department of Homeland Security can still seek to, to remove him, but just not on this particular provision.
0: We should mention that James DeMaya came to the U.S. legally from the Philippines when he was 13. He was convicted of residential burglary twice in California and has been fighting deportation efforts. Justice Kagan wrote the opinion for the majority. Was her reasoning based on the vagueness of the statute?
1: Yes, basically... um Justice Kagan, for the majority, relied on a decision from 2015 written by Justice Antonin Scalia. It was a decision in a case called Johnson versus United States. and It found that a, another uh, provision in a criminal law was unconstitutionally vague. It wasn't clear enough to give notice to the defendant uh, of the possible criminal penalties. In this case, uh, Justice Kagan, for the court, held that this language, crime of violence, was just too vague to withstand constitutional scrutiny. Uh, it wasn't clear enough to give notice uh, that you might be subject to, to removal f- for for a crime that didn't involve violence, um, as this one, uh, these two, by James DeMay did. He was found guilty of residential burglary, never was, a, was known to uh, have engaged in violence, um, but they still tried to Uh, deport him based on the claim he was guilty of a, quote, crime of violence.
0: This was an unusual case because it was argued twice. Tell us about the history.
1: Well, the the, the case actually originally um, came to the Supreme Court during the Obama administration, and the Obama administration sought review in the Supreme Court. Uh, And last term, uh, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case, uh, and then Justice Scalia passed away. Uh, and and in the end, they they um, apparently couldn't reach a conclusion, a uh, decision, so they ordered re-argument in the case. Uh, so that the case was re-argued uh, last October. So it was argued twice in the Supreme Court, and then we got the decision yesterday. It was a long, long process, and it's very rare uh, for a case to be re-argued. Um, but it gives you an idea just, just how... Um, uh, Divided, the court was. and In the end, we had a, a five to four decision. So that, that really wasn't a surprise, uh, given that the case had been re-argued.
0: Kevin, but was there an assumption that Justice Gorsuch would vote with the conservatives?
1: Well, I think some people might have assumed that, but a law is a good deal more complex than liberal conservative. In this case, uh, Justice Gorsuch, he wrote a concurring opinion, and he, and he emphasized the importance of having clear statutes so that government can't act arbitrarily and he detailed the, the long history uh, going all the way back is is uh, England's blackstone um, of reviewing statutes to make sure that they are they're clear uh, and and allow for predictability if you're going to be punished under them uh, so, so I, I think that um, basically justice Gorsuch uh, he, he saw the um, that, that, that This was a way of constraining government from going too far. Uh, You could view that as liberal. You could view that as conservative. um, But I I think that he was careful to look look at the law. And I do think it was important to him that um, really the basis for the lower court's ruling was a decision by Justice Scalia, a relatively conservative justice, uh, and and that... um, the, the, that decision seemed to, to dictate the result in this case, at least in ju- Justice Gorsuch's eyes. So I, I really don't think it's fair to characterize it as a liberal conservative. Some people might have predicted it that way. Um, but uh, in the end, I think law is a good deal more complex than that.
0: Justice Kagan quoted from Justice Scalia several times in her majority opinion. So how did the conservatives on the court defend this provision in their dissent?
1: Well, Chief Justice Roberts wrote for uh, the dissenters, uh, and, and there were four justices in dissent, and basically the, the chief said, well, it's not really unconstitutionally vague, uh, this statute. Uh, it's a different statute than the one that was at issue in, in the Johnson versus United States case. And it's a little bit more clear. And here, all you need uh, is to be found guilty of a crime that creates the substantial risk of violence. Uh, and here, a residential burglary uh, does, in Chief Justice Roberts' view, create the substantial risk uh, uh, of violence, because if you break into somebody's house, and you know, they may defend themselves and that could escalate. Uh, so, so to... to, to Chief Justice Roberts, it wasn't unconstitutionally vague, and it was different from Johnson. Uh, so, so I think that was the way that they kind of tried to um, defend um, the re- removal of Demaya.
0: Now in the DHS statement it said that Secretary Kirsten Nielsen has met with hundreds of members of Congress over the last few months to implore them to take action on passing legislation to close public safety loopholes such as these that encourage illegal immigration and tie the hands of law enforcement does Congress really need to take action here
1: well I, I, I do think Congress needs to take action in terms of immigration reform um, but I don't see uh, Congress needing to take action to respond to the DeMaia case. Actually, if you look at the Department of Homeland Security statement, you see a little bit of confusion there because, as you mentioned, uh, James DeMaia was a legal immigrant. He was a lawful immigrant. He came here under the, the correct procedures. Uh, the, the statement talks about um, you know, people here are undocumented without proper authorization. So, so I think this is just another political statement trying to uh, make hay about uh, the the sort of public concern with with uh, immigration currently I, I do think that there's plenty of other grounds under the immigration statute uh, for the Department of Homeland Security to seek to deport uh, demaya uh, and it doesn't seem necessary to me to amend the laws to try to try to make um, um, him automatically deportable
0: All right, thank you so much for being with us here. That's Kevin Johnson. He's a professor at UC Davis School of Law. Privacy rules are taking effect in the European Union on May 25th, and Facebook is starting to comply with them there. And then, to get ahead of scrutiny in the U.S. and elsewhere, the company said it will provide the same protections to the rest of its 2 billion users. Joining us is Daniel Stoller, Bloomberg Law Senior Legal Editor. Daniel, give us some highlights of this general data protection regulation in the EU.
2: Yes, so the um, general data protection regulation, which is mostly known as the GDPR. Um, It is a pretty broad um, update to EU-wide privacy laws, and a lot of it is based on uh, user consent. So um, pretty much if you log into Facebook or any other uh, social media platform, um, if they're going to be using your data, um, taking control of your data, trying to sell it to a third party, um, there's, there's... spots in the the, uh, regulation that um, stops companies from doing that without express consent from users. So um, a lot of the activities that Facebook is getting in trouble with now, and they've said they um, did get consent, um, some of those issues would have fallen under some of the provisions of the GDPR um, because they didn't get uh, consumer consent. But um, at the end of the day, as long as a company is quite um, open about their privacy policies, um, they've... Um, tried to get uh, consumer consent, give uh, consumers um, direct control over the data, um, they'd be able to fall out of the uh, 4% of their uh, global turnover or the up to $20 million fines that's been often discussed about.
0: What has Facebook said it will do in this country? What specifically?
2: Yeah, so um, as, as you said before, they will be rolling out the uh, GDPR protections as the um, opt-in consent rules. So um, they're going to pretty much allow consumers to opt in or out um, of certain data collection processes. Um, When you're going to use an app, um, they'll have to be more clear um, about how they're using your data. Um, It'll have to be much more clear than some of the boxes that you or I may have clicked on in the past um, to actually use your data in future um, instances and also gives uh, users the right to make their data portable. So if I was using Facebook, but wanted to use a new social media network, I'd be able to get all that data, move it over a new network without um, Facebook having ownership of that data. I mean, at the end of the day, it's giving the users and, as they say, data subjects more control over their data and able to move it around um, no matter where they are.
0: So the GDPR could be used as a model for legislation in the U.S., but how likely are U.S. lawmakers to pass new regulations?
2: Yeah, so they've they've brought it up in and even brought it up in uh, Zuckerberg's testimony Um And they they all have kind of said, yes, it is a great model, but we'll have to see how it works in effect. Um, They wanted to see if it's gonna be too much um, for U.S. regulation, and the U.S. doesn't really have a long history of strong privacy and data protection regulations, so jumping from almost nothing to a GDPR style doesn't look too feasible. And then Senator Thune, after the um, hearings, uh, told us that, don't expect any new data protection legislation soon. We need to see how it works. And they also want to give um, Facebook and other social media companies, because it's not just a Facebook issue, the ability to self-regulate themselves. Now, they do fall under some self-regulatory guidelines um, for direct marketing, um, but there isn't this strong social media, ad tech industry, um, like self-regulatory guidelines like the financial sector has. So they're going to give them a chance to do that. If that fails and we see more um, issues like a Facebook event again, then maybe that w- there would be more pushes. But in the short term, I don't see, and as other policy analysts have told me, um, we're likely not to see um, a global or a, a U.S.-wide um, data protection regulation. It'll be left
1: up to the states.
0: Yeah. And you've written that federal and state enforcement authorities, state attorneys general, and state legislatures are way ahead of Congress in this regard. So tell us about a few of the states that are, seem to be moving faster.
2: Yeah, so California and New York have historically been at the head of the curve for uh, data protection, privacy, uh, cybersecurity enforcement, and they've already come together and have announced their um, multi state um, investigation into the Facebook issues. Um, the FTC, which rarely, uh, the Federal Trade Commission, which rarely ever tells the public they're investigating a company, came out and said that they are investing, investigating Facebook. Um, in this instance, and they, which, is, which is something they did for Equifax. But in these large instances, it's rare for federal uh, enforcement authorities to come out and just say that. Um, so it, it is important um, that, that that also happened, and that it was important from the FTC side because Facebook was under a 2011 um, order to have, uh, based on their prior uh, privacy policy issues. So going back to that and with prior state uh, California, New York enforcement actions dating back almost not dawn of the internet, but let's say late 1990s, early 2000s, they've been on the um, the forefront of online privacy issues and aren't likely to slow down.
0: Just about uh, 45 seconds here. But if you have states like New York and California passing bills, would then there would be a patchwork of legal requirements. Would that force companies to almost comply with the most stringent laws to keep compliance costs down?
2: Yeah, and and that's been the case with um, data breach notification laws up until this year. um, Not every state had one, but it was pretty much a uh, 48-state patchwork, and now we have all 50 plus D.C. and then uh, some of the U.S. territories. And the general consensus from attorneys and other companies is you follow the most stringent one, and that way when, let's say you had a data breach in a uh, South Dakota who just passed their law, if you're already following California and New York's laws,
0: you're going to be... we're going to, go. to we're gonna have to pick this up again next time. That's Daniel Stoller, Bloomberg Law Senior Legal Editor. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.